0: Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back. This is Tavis Killian and Scott McNear. Hey there, everybody. And we've got the latest episode of the Basin Breakdown for you. Yes, it is now September, but that means in this episode, we take all of the biggest stories through the month of August and, well, relay it to you. We've got some of our favorite basins here where most of the activity in the American oil patch is going down. And we're going to start it here in Colorado. What do we have going on, Scott?
1: Well, big uh, merger news here, Davis. Chevron has acquired PDC Energy, creating the largest oil and gas business in Colorado. Chevron Corporation has acquired Denver-based PDC Energy, making it Colorado's largest oil and gas company. This comes three years after Chevron purchased Noble Energy in Colorado. And Texas, too, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Approximately half of the company's 600,000 acres are in the Denver-Julesburg Basin, which is near Chevron's current operations. It will be one of Chevron's top five producing plays worldwide with an average of 400,000 barrels of oil per day. Quote, we have an inventory that's permitted and we see possibilities here. End quote. Chevron's regional vice president, Kim McHugh, told CBS News Colorado, there's been no news regarding possible layoffs for the PDC workforce since the acquisition was announced.
0: Yeah, that's big news for Chevron, but it's, I mean, this is a, this is a big one. I'm really surprised to see PDC Energy get acquired. We're getting more and
1: more consolidation here in Colorado. Um, I don't know how much more there is to consolidate. To have us, <laughs> I mean, there's a few companies here and there, but they're they're not nearly as large as PDC. So we'll have to see uh, how the how the uh, assimilation with Chevron goes for all of PDC and their assets, and uh, hopefully it goes smoothly. I think that the Noble one, for the most part, went pretty well,
0: yeah, as far as I know. Next, 95 oil and gas wells are in the way of economic development in Frederick. The town of Frederick, Colorado, has been expanding at a rate of 6 to 8% per year, but the town's more than 300 wells pose a constant challenge, especially to commercial, industrial, and mixed-use developments, which the mayor said are essential to maintaining reasonable local taxes. Quote, We are trying to bring in commercial and industrial growth, and we find developers say they are stuck and cannot develop on land they own because of oil and gas wells. End quote, Mayor Tracy Kreitz said. Quote, it has led to developers not considering the town of Frederick, end quote. As part of the new requirement that businesses demonstrate that they have the financial means to restore their sites... Frederick is asking the Energy and Carbon Management Commission, formerly the COGCC, to order KPK to plug and abandon the 95 producing wells. This is an unprecedented move, and I watched the trials last month, and basically nothing happened with it. It's not just KPK. There's a couple other companies there, and the developer will say, Hey, we want to develop this land, but because you have the mineral rights, you've got some surface stuff going on, maybe a pumping unit or a tank battery, and the company will say, Well pay us and we'll take it down because this is a producing asset. The city sees oh they're producing two or fewer barrels per day, but that often helps on the bottom line.
1: Well, you know, there's there's two two levels to this, Davis. Like there's the like you said the the, the low stripper well two barrel a day situation where those wells are active and that's not uh in whatever the operator's best interest to go and plug active wells so that someone else can develop the surface land. Mm -hmm. And if they do want them to do that, then they need to pay the reserves value for that well and the remediation cost because it's actively producing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if it's an inactive uh, lease or um, you know, the lease has been um, essentially a cessation of the lease due to uh, the lease is no longer active due to cessation of production and KPK KPK just doesn't want to go spend the money to plug it. Mm-hmm. That's a different thing as well because they now have that obligation. So, I mean, I see where it's frustrating for the industry uh developers, but at the same time, it's it's the right of the mineral owner to be able to access yeah. that resource and develop it. And, you know, the the final thing which is kind of on the town of Frederick if if the the regulations are set up this way is for properly abandoned wells. If the developer goes in and messes with that and now they've triggered a regulation landslide where they can't develop it. Mm-hmm. That's again on the developers to remediate and not on the person who properly abandoned that. Well, I mean, I know that Firestone issue with the the explosion Boy, yeah. and stuff was, was an, a really bad um, example of a poorly, Poorly abandoned wellbore, but I mean, as long as it's properly abandoned, you shouldn't have any issues like that, and mm-hmm. the the service developers should not be continuing to to dig out and remediate other wellbores that have been properly abandoned.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think, like you said, these are stripper wells. I believe these 95 specifically were targeted because some of them were making two to as little as what they would say a fraction of a barrel a day. But hey, through a week, through a year. That's barrels. That makes money. So like you said, I can see how both sides, it's tough to find an agreement because you'll probably want the money for the reserves in place. But this town wants to grow. It wants to expand. I hope they can figure something out.
1: Finally, Tavis, we're going to move on to one opinion article, which we normally don't do in the Basin Breakdown, but it uh, it comes straight from Colorado School Mines. Petroleum Department Head Jennifer Miss Kimmons and former professor for data management uh, in the Petroleum Department, Jim Crompton. And I'd recommend that everybody that is in the the petroleum industry and has uh, especially gone to Colorado School of Mines, check out this opinion piece um, stating, Opinion, the need for balance in the regulation of the oil and natural gas industry. In terms of its dedication to the safe and responsible stewardship on the state's oil and gas resources, Colorado is a national leader. Colorado has enacted precedent-setting regulations over the past few years, from baseline groundwater testing and monitoring to air regulations focusing on methane leak detection and repair. However, there's still a long way to go, and even though it's a difficult road for the regulators, it's important that we continue. Operators would prefer consistency, predictability, and time to acclimate to new regulations but the pace is actually quickening. One stakeholder told us that in the previous five years, she had participated in 25 rulemaking programs. Although the state has been active, has it truly been productive? And that's the, the gist of that article stating that even though Colorado is a leader in regulatory um, prog- progress in the oil and gas industry, they are enacting these rules so fast and changing them, but that by the time, uh, an operator kind of gets up to speed on this, it's it's obsolete or outdated and they have to start mm-hmm. back at square one to get back in compliance again. And it's, it's a struggle for anyone trying to operate in the basin and it uh, is going to ultimately hurt future development in the state.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. It's the question of are we being busy just to be busy and look good or are we actually putting good effort forward to produce legislation and regulations that actually benefit stakeholders in the industry? I'm sure you can imagine the way this article's kind of, well, the way this opinion piece is worded, how people in industry feel, especially if you work between Colorado or California, but definitely a good piece that everyone should take a peek at, like Scott said. But that's all we've got for the DJ Niobrara Basin. We're going to move it to Oklahoma to our Scoop Stack Plays, where the state treasurer has updated a list of banned banks competing with energy, oil, and gas. Now, this is an update to something we mentioned last month. If you want to hear that episode, you can find it in this podcast or on our website. In early 2023, Oklahoma announced it would work its hardest to ensure that business was no longer conducted with what they would call, quote, woke banks. That basically came down to 13 banks boycotting the oil and gas sector in some way, but that number has since been reduced to six in the past month. Financial institutions that boycott oil and gas companies may be prohibited from doing business with the state, according to an Oklahoma law passed in 2022. State Treasurer Todd Russ says he is committed to upholding the law. The six banks viewed as actively boycotting are BlackRock, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, State Street Corp, and, unsurprisingly, Climate First Bank. Bank of America was funding an infrastructure project in Stillwater, Oklahoma, but these new regulations may or may not prevent that funding from taking place, so we're still in a bit of legal limbo, but we'll be sure to keep you posted with how this goes, and it seems like they're pretty firm on the idea.
1: Yeah. And, um, it seems like, I think some of the banks that were on that original 13 have, uh, either backtracked what they said mm-hmm. or realized that, um, energy is on the, the oil and gas side is, is inherently interwoven into many investments that they need to back and realize that it just isn't, isn't realistic or financially sound to, to exclude a lot of their, their investments that uh-huh. they're making. And, We'll see what happens with these remaining six. You know, obviously, the Climate First Bank probably isn't going to um, step down from their stance, but you never know. And uh, I'm still surprised that some of these big, big ones are, are on here. But I guess they've they've taken these stances in the past, and it's not really a huge surprise that these, these major corporations are are wanting to to face outward along with the general yeah. popla- population attitude of uh, anti-oil and gas sentiment. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to the next article where Oklahoma City law firm has been selected to help Oklahoma attorney generals with potential winter storm cost litigation. In a possible legal action against fuel suppliers accused of scamming consumers out of billions of dollars during winter storm Uri, the state of Oklahoma has chosen Oklahoma City law firm Foshi and Yaf to represent it, according to Attorney General Genter Drummond's announcement. Kim David, the state corporation commissioner, claimed that Oklahoma's utility companies were forced to pay exorbitant prices for that gas from suppliers or middlemen. Now that the costs have been incurred, regular Oklahomans will be paying for the next 20 or so years. I don't know what your thoughts on this are, Tavis. Um, I mean, it it seems like a continuation of... Didn't we talk about this last
0: month? Yeah, and I just... I hope that they have... Uh the evidence at this point, because they have picked a law firm and it seems like they're moving forward with litigation. I'm sure they've done their homework, but I hope this isn't so much as a a witch hunt as we see with the fuels market in California, which we'll talk more about later, but more so actual data looking at how it affects people purchasing energy and what we can do to fix this system in the future. So yeah, this is just the latest update. They've picked a law firm. We did talk about it last month, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see who's guilty or who's like you said, paying the bill. Next, there's an oil problem for neighbors in Stillwater after rain has washed excess oil into a creek. After rain, oil spilled into a Stillwater creek that runs behind homes. One neighbor claimed they have been battling it since 2018. When visiting the well, the air was filled with the aroma of oil and the ground was covered in dried oil. Quote, the estimate is about five barrels, and it had run through a field and then eventually found its way into a creek from a well site, so there were two areas that needed really to be cleaned up, End quote, said Matt Skinner, a spokesman for the Corporation Commission. Quote, We still think that the oil and natural gas industry as a whole is a great thing for the state of Oklahoma, but it just takes a few people that act like this to give it a bad name, end quote, said McKeever, a local Stillwater resident. And yeah, I mean, we only have the right to operate as producers in this industry as long as we do our part and don't mess up other people's environments or days with any problems that we might have. So the fact that they've been dealing with this since 2018, imagine uh, even though we know Oklahoma has a certain perspective, given the oil and gas industry, it's probably going to be some consequences with a five barrel spill.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's too bad to have us, I mean, five barrels, isn't a huge amount of oil to, to run in, but that's why they have the, the blue lines, uh, laid out and making sure that if you do have a spill, you report it immediately so that can remediation can start because once that stuff hits, um, hits water and can start running. It just spreads out, and obviously it's floating. So anywhere that water goes, it's gonna float with it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and it's it's it can be tough to to wrangle once it kind of gets out of the out of control on you.
0: Yep. But
1: that pretty much wraps up Oklahoma. So let's move on over to California, where California's top court has ruled against Monterey's ban on new oil and gas drilling. After a California Supreme Court ruled that it was preempted by state law to halt new oil and gas drilling in unincorporated areas of Monterey County in Central California and prohibit some extraction techniques at existing wells, a voter-approved measure lost its third straight legal battle. The state's highest court upheld earlier judgments by a Court of Appeals and a trial judge that two provisions of Measure Z, which Monterey voters approved in 2016— infringe on the state's right to control oil and gas drilling operations. Since no oil and gas operations in the county currently use or plan to use fracking techniques, the third provision of the ordinance that outlawed it was not in contention in the legal dispute.
0: So to translate a lot of that legalese, uh, this county said, we don't want anyone to use hydraulic fracturing here. The court said, well... There's no hydraulic fracturing going on here, and there likely won't be, so we're going to leave that to CalGEM to regulate. You can't do that from a county level. And I think it's the third time they've tried to do such a thing.
1: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I guess I, what blows my mind about this article is that uh, the uh, measure was approved in 2016, and they're still <laughs> fighting it in
0: court. Right. But, it, again, it's it's. It's something that they just perceive as evil. They're essentially saying, no more baby cannibalism in this county. And then the courts have to say there is no baby cannibalism. And if there was, that's up to (laughs) the state government to regulate. So hopefully they uh, find some sort of resolution soon because this is the third time and the same thing. Well, by the definition of insanity, I think everyone's going to try the same thing again. Next, Governor Newsom appoints the first director of a new oil watchdog. The Division of Petroleum Market Oversight, a new office created by Governor Newsom's gas price gouging law, will be led by antitrust prosecutor Ty Milder to look into price gouging and hold big oil responsible. Milder, a seasoned prosecutor and expert in antitrust, most recently worked as counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for the U.S. Department of Justice's Antitrust Division. He has successfully looked into and prosecuted businesses and people who tried to defraud customers by fixing prices, manipulating bids, and offering bribes. Milder also worked for the California Department of Justice, where she prosecuted oil and gas companies for violating state antitrust laws. Gavin Newsom's price gouging law, which was approved during a special session of the legislature earlier this year and went into effect in June, included the new oil watchdog office as a key provision. The division will keep a close eye on the sector every day to spot any unusual or illegal activity, and it will report any legal violations such as dishonesty in the sector or market manipulation to the attorney general for prosecution. And I'm excited. It sounds like we have someone who is really quite good at their jaw and dealing with antitrust. So hopefully that tells us whether or not there is price gouging. I feel like uh, Gavin's really looking for another Enron situation here, but I uh, want to see what they find.
1: Yeah. Um, we'll see, Tavis. I don't I don't know that this is going to do a whole lot other than just uh, make more and more of the larger companies leave California, yep. <laughs> like the Chevron and Exxon uh more on the downstream side, I would mm-hmm. even guess if if it's relating to uh, refining and and gasoline and diesel. So at the end of the day, I see less less businesses uh, operating in California from this and higher fuel prices for all
0: Californians. Right bit opposite of what they were looking for. Sorry to be a Debbie
1: Downer. No, that's absolutely <laughs> what it is.
0: <laughs> at the end of the day, if you remove a lot of people that are refining those products, What's going to happen to your fuel prices? It's going to look like there's even more manipulation. But that is California. Next up, we're going to the Marcellus. What do we got there?
1: Well, in the Marcellus this month, we have an article stating that underground mines are unlikely to blame for a deadly house explosion. According to state officials, it is unlikely that natural gas seeped in from an abandoned underground mine and caused a house explosion that killed six people in western Pennsylvania. According to the State Department of Environmental Protection... Its inspectors looked into the local coal seam and discovered no shafts or boreholes close to the exploding house. However, a department statement said that they, quote, determined the likelihood of an abandoned mine-related gas issue to be very low, end quote. The agency did not specify how much of the house the inspectors searched. Three buildings were destroyed, and at least a dozen others were damaged by the explosion. According to authorities, the focus of the investigation is currently related to the homeowner's hot water tank. And Tavis, uh, you kind of gave a little bit more background to me when we were talking about this article. Could you kind of summarize what it was that uh, the allegations relating to oil and gas on this story is?
0: Yeah, if you go ahead and Google image this article title or Pennsylvania House Explosion, you'll just see that one house was leveled, the two next to it were lit on fire. And I mean, the, the spot in the center, there's no house anymore. So of course, people start to catastrophize. And the first thing that came out in the media, the local media was, Well, this is an area of coal mines and underground mines, so maybe the hydraulic fracturing caused a conduit into one of these mines, and all this gas accumulated, and then the house exploded. Uh, That was, of course, as the DEP has shown, disproven at this point, and that the chances are very low. So now they're looking into something that we are all more familiar with, a faulty water heater. And uh, they were having problems with that at the time. That's not just hearsay to cover it up. That's not big oil covering its tracks. It was really most likely problems with their water heater. And it's a shame that this happened because six people did die.
1: Not ideal, but, um, you know, they'll continue investigating. I'm sure they'll come to a conclusion on what uh, what actually did cause it. And it's, It is sad for the families of the people that lived there. But uh, let's, let's move on to that next article, Tavis. What, uh, what else do we have in the Marcellus?
0: Now we've got a new study similar to the one we mentioned in California a few months ago suggesting a link between natural gas drilling, asthma, and lymphoma in children. According to recent reports, residents of all ages who live close to natural gas wells in heavily drilled western Pennsylvania were more likely to experience severe asthma attacks and children who lived there were more likely to develop a relatively uncommon form of cancer because the studies weren't intended to do that. Specifically, the researchers were unable to determine whether the drilling contributed to the health issues. Instead, they looked through the health records to try to identify potential correlations. So not necessarily searching for people living near drilled areas, but people with health issues. What's the common thread? Well, industry groups drew attention to what they claim the flaws are in the studies underlying assumptions and data limitations. However, the scientists claimed that they had not discovered any links between gas drilling brain, bone, or childhood leukemia. So it sounds like, most likely, if something does happen, it might be asthma. But then again, like the industry's claim, there are many, many different factors that go into studies like this. So I think it's going to be a heavily researched topic in the upcoming decade.
1: Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, not just in Pennsylvania, too, but... Uh in general you're going to see a lot of these types of uh research projects or issues being uh being looked into you know in california with all the the smog and and that type of stuff affecting people's health mm-hmm. i mean the other thing that it obviously there is no correlation with oil and gas drilling and production in this area but uh you know some areas just have higher uh norm or naturally occurring radioactive material and And that, you know, if it leaches into your water table or anything like that, you know, unrelated to oil and gas, you could still have issues there. Mm And you don't know it until you find the the source or test it or you find enough of a population to, to put together a determination that there's an issue in that area.
0: Absolutely. Just scratching the surface at this point. And next, we got to take it to another basin. We are at the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. What's going on, Scott? Well,
1: we've got another merger and acquisition story where One Rock Energy has bought 160,000 acres in the Powder River Basin. According to recent press release, Northwoods Management Company and some related entities in the Powder River Basin have been fully acquired by One Rock Energy Holdings, LLC. The assets and land, which cover 160,000 net acres across Converse, Campbell, and Johnson counties in Wyoming, and produce an average of 5,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day, are mostly contained in contiguous leaseholds. The deal was first revealed in June by Pan Management's investment arm, OneRock, a private equity firm. With support from Apollo, Northwoods acquired more than 112,000 acres in the Powder River Basin in 2018 by paying $500 million to SM Energy Company. And you know, that's what uh, that's what it was bought for in twenty eighteen. It'd be interested. They haven't released it to have us, but it'd be interested to see what comes out with how much they uh, how much they how much they bought this plus a little bit more acreage, you know, in, in today's dollars.
0: Think it'd be a little cheaper.
1: I no, I don't think
0: so. <laughs> Next, Occidental Petroleum misses out on quarterly profit and declares no more money for the Powder River basin. Occidental missed its full-year production forecast by 1%, but due to a decline in oil and gas prices, it missed second-quarter profit expectations and had to take a write-down to close some operations. The company increased its full-year production guidance by 1% to between 1.9 million barrels of oil per day and 1.24 million barrels of oil per day from a midpoint of 1.195 million, as a result of the quarter's better-than-expected output. Additionally, Occidental announced that it would forego further exploration in Wyoming's powder river and record an impairment charge for the properties totaling 164 million after taxes. Scott, I don't have an MBA. What are write downs and impairment charges? I mean, that's
1: um, where you're essentially writing off the value of um, an asset because you have lost value in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, it's not worth as much to them now uh, as it was when they, when they bought it. And Um, whether that's because of the rock or, um, you know, time value of money, the time that it's going to take them to decide to go develop it. I don't know, but, um, yeah, they're just gonna, they're going to take that, uh, cash off the table for it as a loss and, uh, you know, move on realistically. I think that this move and I obviously am not, uh, privy to the moves of, of Vicky Hollow, but, uh, (laughs) or Warren Buffett. But uh, I think that they're probably going to focus more on the big acquisition that they just did in Texas with the carbon capture stuff and the money that they would spend developing the Powder River is going to be better put to use for them trying to get that thing up and running and take advantage of tax credits in, in Texas.
0: That makes sense. Hope it works.
1: Our last article in the Powder River, Tavis, is titled Demonizing Oil Claims Another Casualty. Petroleum engineers. Oil companies are having trouble hiring enough petroleum engineers, and the universities are graduating fewer petroleum engineers than ever, despite the attractive salaries they offer. The University of Wyoming awarded Lene Lucan, a research fellow with the Heartland Institute, a bachelor's degree in petroleum engineering. She told Cowboy State Daily that a significant portion of the issue is due to the policies of the Biden administration, the information that children are taught about fossil fuels in a public school settings, and the media. But according to Lucan, the oil firms and trade groups are also at fault. They largely submit and submit to and take the criticism instead of standing up to those who demonize them. Um,
0: and while po- we do have this story from a graduate who is from the Powder River Basin, you know, going to the University of Wyoming... This even extends past that. I mean, I read the most recent newsletter from the Colorado School of Mines Petroleum Department, and it seems like they're optimistic about incoming freshmen. But, yeah, between those things she listed, what kids are taught and media and misinformation and current administrations, it's tough to want to get into this industry. I get it.
1: Yeah, I agree, Tavis. Um, you know, some of uh, – a lot of that is the the public view on it currently – And that is something that that needs to be brought up and and explained to people better so that, uh, like they said, the industry isn't just taking that as a grain of salt and assuming that people continue to back them because they have to. Um, But on the flip side, just like you said, at at all the institutions, it seems, um, you know, there's a lag. There's a lag in that uh, we've had some pretty poor oil prices, relatively speaking, in the last few years. and, And a lot of people didn't want to get into it because they They didn't see the upswing coming at all. And we'll see if if as prices change in the future, that also shifts back. But that doesn't mean that uh, the industry needs to be uh, reactive on making sure that that the public is informed. Mm
0: -hmm. Quick month for the Powder River. Lots of surface level stuff, lots of acquisitions. And now we're going to move it to the Permian where, hey, we've got a couple more acquisitions. But we're going to start with a little company named Mewburn Oil and their penalties to settle pollution claims. In order to resolve claims regarding alleged air pollution at its oil and gas wells in New Mexico and Texas, Mewburn Oil has agreed to pay a $5.5 million penalty, according to the U.S. EPA. In a consent decree submitted with a complaint in federal court in New Mexico, the Tyler, Texas-based oil and gas company admitted its responsibility to pay the fine. In the complaint, the EPA and the New Mexico Environment Department claim that during flyover inspections of Mewburn's oil and gas wells in the Permian Basin in 2019, 2020, and 2022, they discovered numerous Clean Air Act violations. According to its website, Mewburn's one of the largest privately held oil and gas companies in the United States and manages more than 2,100 oil and gas wells in Texas, New Mexico, and Oklahoma the U.S. government and the state of New Mexico will split the $5.5 million fine equally.
1: Yeah, Tavis, and I dug into the uh, consent decree a little bit, actually. And and along with, you know, half of it going to the state of New Mexico and half of it going to the federal government um, even split, uh, a lot of this had to do with flaring, you know, clean air, like it said. But um, it, it wasn't just New... I, it's interesting. I guess most of, the, most of the case was in New Mexico, but they, they were cited for stuff in Texas... As well, which, um, you know, that was where the EPA came in because it it crossed multiple states with the issue. And that's Uh, that's why the EPA was involved in this case, not just the state of New Mexico. Yeah,
0: because it seemed a bit low profile for the EPA to manage. But once it becomes interstate, I see why someone's going to step in.
1: Exactly. So moving on to our next article, Permian Resources has announced an acquisition with Earthstone Energy in an all-stock transaction. According to a definitive agreement that was announced by Permian Resources Corporation and Earthstone Energy Incorporated, Permian Resources will acquire Earthstone in an all-stock deal worth roughly $4.5 billion, including Earthstone's net debt. Each share of Earthstone common stock will be exchanged for a fixed number of 1.446 shares of Permian Resources common stock, according to the terms of the deal. With over 400,000 Permian net acres, pro forma production of about 300,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day, and an improved free cash flow profile to boost returns to to shareholders. The transaction strengthens Permian Resources' position as a leading Delaware Basin independent E&P. And, you know, Permian's been making a lot of moves lately. Uh, Earthstone just finished a deal right before this. Um, I think we reported on it. Um, with non-op operator Northern Oil and Gas, and so they just grew, and then Permian swooped right back in behind them and, and gobbled that whole thing up. <laughs> so I mean, Permian's got got some running room now. I hope because they sure have uh, they've sure expanded a lot really fast since merging with Colgate and and rebranding as Permian.
0: Oh yeah, it's gonna be exciting to see where money gets deployed and what they start working on. But that is only one of another large acquisition for last month. We also have Ring Energy expanding their Permian Basin assets with the acquisition of Founders Oil and Gas. The assets of Founders Oil and Gas for LLC's Central Basin Platform, CBP, have been fully acquired by Ring Energy Incorporated in the Permian Basin in Ector County, Texas. Founders' CBP operations are concentrated on the development of roughly 3,600 net acres that are comparable to Ring's CBP assets purchased in 2022 from Stronghold Energy Operating to LLC. Ring's ability to pay off debt is accelerated by the acquisition, which is immediately accretive to production, reserves, and adjusted free cash flow. Additionally, the acquisition expands Ring's inventory of drilling sites with low risk and high rates of return, giving Ring more flexibility in how its capital is allocated. Mr. Paul D. McKinney, Chairman of the Board and Executive Officer and Chief Executive Officer, commented, quote, "This transaction complements our conventional focused CBP asset position in the Permian Basin with assets that are similar to the CBP asset we acquired in the third quarter of last year." Our near-term focus is to quickly integrate these operations into our business, while at the same time formalizing detailed development plans for the acquired assets. That's just business as usual.
1: Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> it looks like they're really trying to block up a decent, def- decent set of acreage to develop, continue developing here. And um, you know, the the Central Basin platform is a little bit less uh, less in the news or sexy, if you will, compared to the Delaware Basin, where you know the all, all the activity has been going on. so it's a good it's a good area of the Permian, but uh, just maybe doesn't get as much attention as as mm-hmm. typical and and it's good to see that there are some companies out there that're they're putting together a decent acreage hold and planning to to develop that those zones as well.
0: <clears throat> but that's just the Permian. Are things going in the Eagleford? Ford? Well, we, we got some stuff going on this month. Well, we've got Chesapeake in the Eagleford
1: News again, Tavis, where Chesapeake strikes a final deal in Eagleford divestiture. Chesapeake Energy, an independent U.S. energy company, has agreed to sell Silver Bow Resources its remaining Eagleford shale holdings for $700 million. The agreement covers roughly 540 wells and nearly 42,000 acres in the Eagleford's condensate window. Almost 29,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day or 60% liquid hydrocarbons were produced from the property according to Chesapeake's reported output during the second quarter of the year. The Oklahoma City-based company estimated the assets remaining proven reserves at 124 million barrels of oil equivalent as of year-end 2022. The deal represents the last step in Chesapeake's long-awaited divestiture of its liquids-rich Eagleford asset, which at almost 450,000 net acres was once one of the largest in the area. Since changing its strategy a year ago, the company has become the second largest gas producer in the U.S. thanks to operations in the Pennsylvania Marcellus Shale and the Louisiana Haynesville Shale. A separate article that we found related to this story also reported the acquisition raises Silver Bow's anticipated net production for the fourth quarter of 2023 to 87,000 to 99,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. In addition, there are 300 more high-confidence drilling sites spread across the Austin Chalk and Eagleford formations that are that are currently in direct competition for funding, according to a statement released by Silverbow on August 14th. And, I mean, it seems like Chesapeake has uh, has said to their investors, we're getting out of the Eagleford, and they finally did it. And, uh, you know, they've put their money where they they see the value for future growth. And and on the flip side, it looks like Silverbow has... Uh, You know, been a good partner with them and struck enough deals to to take that acreage off their hands, and they think they can develop it and and make it make it productive for them as well. So good for both companies, I guess.
0: Next, and not exactly the Eagleford, but very close, the Hainesville duck count is questioned as U.S. gas production is forecast to slip. Though we did experience a 100 million cubic foot per day decline in August for natural gas production, the lower 48 states' natural gas production is predicted to decline by up to 147 million cubic feet per day in September. According to the most recent forecast from the U.S. EIA, the Haynesville Shale is responsible for around 63% of the predicted drop for next month. However, analysts have noted a possible overcount by the EIA in the quantity of ducks accessible in the play, as has EMP Chesapeake Energy. According to EIA data, the average monthly production in the play is increased by 9%, or 1.37 billion cubic feet per day compared to the first three quarters of 2022, even though businesses have put up rigs in the Hainesville. In an August 18th report, Sanford C. Bernstein analyst Jean Ann Salisbury questioned how much of the Hainesville's ducks are real. Salisbury noted that Chesapeake and Southwestern said on a recent earnings call that the true numbers of viable ducks is probably closer to 200 rather than the EIA's predicted 786, and this is, quote, obviously a big difference, end quote. So, Where's this coming from? A potentially five hundred rig difference and what ducks are available by our leading energy information administration?
1: You know, i don't I don't have a good answer, tavis. Uh, i I would believe that Chesapeake,, um, you know, from our previous article, moving into the Haynesville probably has a pretty good wrap or head head wrapped around what uh, what's going on in that basin. Um, but then again, it could just be, you know, uh, the EIA does use some calculations to come up with these anticipated duck forward estimates. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's, you know, the bad data in, bad data out type of situation going on. I, I can't really tell you, though.
0: Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Eagleford remains a bit slower than usual. So we're going to move it over to the Williston, where we do have some action. First article, Crescent Point sells North Dakota assets to a private e In exchange for $500 million in cash, Crescent Point Energy Corporation has agreed to sell its North Dakotan assets to an undisclosed private operator. The assets had an annualized net operating income of about $375 million at a WTI price of $75 per barrel in the second quarter of 2023, with a gross production of about 23,500 barrels of oil equivalent per day. The company stated in a release on August 24th that production in North Dakota was anticipated to fall 18,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day by as soon as 2027 and further decline in subsequent years due to the limited drilling inventory associated with the assets. As a result of an unspecified amount of capital that would have been invested in the North Dakotan assets, the company is also lowering its developmental capital expenditure guidance for 2023 by about $100 million to $1.1 to $1.2 billion private buyer huh it's a lot of money
1: <laughs> yeah we'll see uh, as this article continues to develop who who they actually sold it to i'm sure that will come out um once the deal uh you know is totally finalized uh but uh we'll just have to wait and see and and hopefully hopefully it uh is a win-win for both both sides and and someone doesn't get left holding holding the bag if you will our next article for the Williston states data from 17,000 wells tells a new tale on Bakken's oil-boosting frack hits. Positive interactions stand out significantly from those in the majority of other unconventional plays in the North Dakota's Bakken shale. Frack hits typically reduce production in parent wells that are older elsewhere, but they frequently increase production in the Bakken. Kyong Suk Min of the Energy and Environmental Research Center, EERC, in North Dakota elaborates, quote, The reason why Bakken operators have historically not seen much production loss from the parent-child effect is because their initial completion designs were small, suboptimal, and understimulated, end quote. This This was written in a conference paper by Mean, a reservoir engineer and data scientist, and his EERC colleagues, it came to the conclusion that understimulated wells are the main cause of advantageous frac hits in the Bakken. Nearly half of the 17,000 plus horizontal wells analyzed by the research team's machine learning models were found to have been impacted by parent-child interactions. And Tavis, I think this is something that uh, a lot of people actually knew, but maybe there hadn't been the research and, and paper done on it because the Bakken is just such a highly fractured shale play and it is super complex it's not it's not your typical um your typical shale that you see in your wolf camp types of basins that that didn't have the same uh geologic uh changes to it over time um but that tied with the fact that um the shale boom really kind of started up in the Williston to a certain extent uh, when we were drilling one-mile laterals and, and doing different types of frack jobs that we aren't doing now. Um, you know, the, the, the opportunity upside for refracs definitely is something that uh, companies – Try to take advantage of when they can, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, they have to balance it against drilling new wells because the declines are just always so, so fast
0: anyway. Yeah, but still, this could be good news in contrast to that previous article we read where they said, oh, it's only going to decline. Hopefully we can turn, like you said, the anecdotal sort of things into something more data-driven and figure out really how to squeeze every drop out of this lemon, huh? And the last story... For not only this basin, but for the podcast, Ukrainians are moving to North Dakota for oil field jobs to help their families back home. Over a dozen newcomers have just arrived in North Dakota as part of a trade group's pilot initiative to bring in migrants and refugees during a labor shortage through the Uniting for Ukraine Humanitarian Program. In accordance with the North Dakota Petroleum Council's Bakken Global Recruitment of Oilfield Workers Program mouthful. 12 more Ukrainians are expected to arrive by August 15th, and there are an estimated 2,500 more jobs open. Things have been especially rough through this 10-month labor shortage as the 2015 downturn and pandemic were great incentives to finally push labor to their home states or elsewhere, especially if it was a warmer destination. And I mean, this has always seemed like and it. It's been a job in North Dakota. I went on a YouTube hole for a while and looked at how work camps are either booming or really struggling to find people, so I included this one it's just because it's interesting to bring in refugee workers i mean it
1: seems to a certain extent like a natural fit to have us. there's there's plenty of oil and gas related jobs in ukraine and the climate you know there can vary to be relatively chilly as well that's a good point so i mean i I don't think that uh you know it let me put it this way it's 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 smart to try to to get someone who has some experience to come in Mm -hmm. and would be willing to work than to have to train up a whole bunch of new green hats so i mean it, it seems like a like a good program, and I hope that it continues to to help both uh, migrants coming into the u s and the oil industry in the Williston Basin.
0: right. I know the American dream may not be what it used to look like a hundred years ago, but I'm really excited for these people. And also, we should get excited for ourselves. There could be big things coming. If you look at those WTI prices in the news, we might just be trending upwards. So if you want to learn more about that, stay in the know, following this podcast is probably one of the best things you can do. The information's free. We put out regular weekly and monthly segments along with other stuff on the website and a lot of periodical research that we've conducted over the past couple of years. So go ahead, find everything you'd like at www rarepetro.com that'll link you to youtube soundcloud spotify whatever else you distribute your information through and show you even some of our favorite news sources but i think that's about all i've got going on here you have any more housekeeping to go over nope thanks for uh for meeting with me again this month tavis always a pleasure scott this has been tavis killian with rare petro and until we see you next time take care everybody